The reading is taken <coughs> excuse me, from Hebrews chapter 12, beginning at verse 4, on page 1211. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of Spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Okay, oh, we're on. Hey. There's a sermon in there all on its own. Uh, let's just, maybe I should stop there, Esther, what do you think? Um, and actually, you've got to this passage, which I have to say is a very challenging passage. So I do stand before you, uh, someone who I hope manages to get to this passage with the right spirit, the right heart, and the right mind in terms of trying to convey what it's about. But we're in the middle of this series looking at God's love. And today we're looking about the fact that God's love is tough. God's love is tough. It's not just sentimental, but it's tough. And when I think about God's love, there are lots of aspects of God's love in Scripture, and we've looked about that in other uh, Sundays, but one of the passages I come back to again and again, and this is a message translation, is a letter Paul wrote to the church in Philippi in the first chapter, and it says this in verse 9 and 10. So this is my prayer, that your love will flourish and that you will not only love much, but you will love well. Learn to love appropriately. Need to use your head and test your feelings so that your love is sincere and intelligent, not sentimental gush. That's the message translation of the Bible rather than the New King James, just in case any of you were, were wondering which translation that was. But this morning as we think about the topic of love and what true love looks like, we're looking at this particular passage. But I wonder this morning whether there's anyone who's bold enough to say who is a parent that actually bringing up a child doesn't require discipline. Okay, that's not too many volunteers. Is it loving to allow somebody to destroy themselves? Is it loving to allow somebody to go off the rails and hurt other people and themselves in doing it? Is it loving to be silent in front of bad behavior or abuse or failure and to do nothing? Is it genuinely loving to allow someone to waste their life and do nothing about it. They're actually really important and tough questions. See, we often think about the idea and what love is like, and we think love and boundaries are opposites. Or that loving someone is the opposite of actually allowing them to, to experience the consequences of their behavior. Discipline and discipline is a fact of everybody's life. If you've worked in the world, you'll know that discipline is part of what it means to be human in all our different forms of life. Whether you're someone who works for the police or the fire brigade, you work with the justice system, whether you're a landlord or a tenant, whether you're involved in debt collectors, the world has an ability to impose discipline often without love. It's what we do. We try to bring order to the way we live and what it means to live in a community. But we're called to discipline with love, which is different. Some of my most memorable moments, not good moments, were some of the brutal work-placed environments I found myself in 
that actually tend to leave where there's lots of discipline, but absolutely no love with discipline. Hebrews 11, which is the passage we just read, is um, uh, the passage before, uh, the chapter before we've had just read. It's a journey of adventure into the wilderness. Sorry, let me just uh, backtrack a second. I've missed something out. I'll come back to Hebrews 11 in a minute. I want to just, before I get to the passage, and if you have it open in front of you on page uh, 1211, I'll come to that in a second. But I want to sort of say to begin with that for many of us, uh, if you come from a relatively middle class, well-educated, affluent uh, world, actually most of us, me included, struggle with the concept of how to discipline your children well. Most of us only want to speak positively into the lives of our children. Um, And actually, have I heard any of these words come out of my mouth as a parent? Well, he or she is a really active child. Well, she didn't sleep very well last night, so her behavior is understandable. It's okay. Well, they've been under a lot of stress recently, so actually, you know, their behavior's okay. I haven't spent enough time with my children recently, so it's all okay. You know, well, kids will be kids. It's the kind of thing we often say. And when we hear some of those things and we go and experience some of the things, what do the parents say? What do I say? What am I tempted to say? Do you know what? I'm just too tired to deal with this right now. If I say something, they won't listen anyway. One or two nods, possibly. I don't want to think, I don't want my children to think that I'm mean so I won't say anything. Or I have to say this has been used in our household one or two times, a bit of an admission. Sorry, Joe, about to say this. It's, I'm not always going to be the bad guy. The spouse can be the bad news this day. How often do we say those things? I think living at the time we live in, in this particular time, in this century, at this particular juncture in the UK, there's a huge amount of guilt we feel in the fact that we want things to go well, and so actually what we want to do is we want to protect our children from consequences, and we'll do whatever it takes to to make sure that doesn't happen. I mean, what kind of parent would want their child to go through pain? No parent would want their child to go through pain. But the difficulty with that is that we then try to present, protect them from all the kind of consequences that come to their lives. And we think that love and discipline are opposites. They're not connected, they're not the same thing, they're not part of the same coin, but they're opposites. That to love and discipline are opposites and different rather than that they're the same thing. They're part of the same thing. Loving discipline is all together. And if we look at God's love for us, we see that God's love for us is not erratic. God's love for us is not like this here and like that tomorrow. It doesn't move from pole to pole in that. When God disciplines us, he's loving us. When he loves us, he disciplines us. Our Father's love 
is a tough love. Our Father's love is a holy love. God's grace in our life is always filled with truth. God's truth in our life is always filled with grace. They go together. I'll come back to the passage you have in front of us. Now, this text in Hebrews 12 is written at a really uh, key point in the passage. And it's in a really interesting context that this is written, that we heard read from Sue this morning. See, because it paints a picture, Hebrews paints a picture of Christian life that isn't a picture that we often recognize in the UK in the 21st century. In Hebrews 11, they've been talking about, the writer of Hebrews, he's been talking about that following faith, being a a disciple, following God, is an adventure. It's like going out into the wilderness. It's continually an adventure into the unknown of not quite knowing what's today, what's tomorrow, what it would lead. It follows the history of the patriarchs, like Abraham, like Isaac and Jacob. They didn't know what tomorrow brought, but it's an adventure with God. The writer of Hebrews then goes on to say it's also Christian life, it's life that's hazardous. It involves conflict. The Christian life is not just a game like on a cruise ship going along the Mediterranean having a beautiful time, but there's a conflict in the Christian life where there's an enemy who's deceitful and try and trip us up or try and take us away from where we need to go. And where there's real suffering and real pain, they are a fact of our discipleship and of our Christian life. And the verses just before the one we read in, in Hebrews 12 talk about the Christian life like a marathon race, like an elite runner, or like a wrestling match in the Olympic Games in verse 4, like a conflict, adventure, conflict, a race, a wrestling match, is that how you see your Christian life? Are any of those four things how you see your Christian life on a day-by-day basis? An adventure, a conflict, a race, or a wrestling match? I don't know about wrestling match, but there we go. But you see, in the UK, in the 21st century, what do most churches tend to say? They said, well, come and join us. Do we say, come and join us for the most exciting adventure of your life? You don't know where God's spirit is going to lead you, but it will be an amazing adventure, the adventure of the Christian life. There'll be opposition, it'll be challenging, it'll be difficult. But you know what? You'll have to persevere, you'll have to grow, you'll have to mature, you'll have to get people behind you to make that happen. But you know what? At the end, there's this extraordinary prize that's yours, that's worth everything for that's worth everything for. And it will take everything you've got. Or, do we say this? Come and join us. You'll love our music. We'll have the best coffee in town. The chairs will be really soft, so when the vicar's speaking for a little bit too long, your bottom will still be able to fill your bottom by the end of those 20-odd minutes. When you'll be able to sit and you'll be able to hear something, a beautiful piece of music. And if you're really, really, really blessed, you can join one of our committee meetings. That's what we say churches. Now, my question is this. In the context of this passage, if that's your vision of church, Who needs discipline for anything like that? Who needs discipline 
for a church like that. And in the context of that, the writer of Hebrews then goes on to show the necessity of discipline. In reading about these passages uh, around Hebrews 12, I came across this speech from President Roosevelt, and he said this in a speech about the, the strenuous life. He said this, I wish to preach not the doctrine of ignoble ease, but the doctrine of the strenuous life, the life of toil and effort of labor and strife, to preach that the highest form of success, which comes not to the man or woman who desires more ease, but to the person who does not shrink from the danger that faces them, from hardship, from bitterness, from toil. And out of this struggle, out of this journey, out of this adventure, out of the extraordinary gift of life, there comes a splendid ultimate triumph. So why does Hebrews 12 talk about God's discipline as flowing naturally from the description of a Christian life as requiring maximum effort? The Christian life does demand and does call for commitment. Without discipline, none of us would be able to see our lives flourish and to grow the way that God would want them to. Without discipline, we won't finish the adventure that we've started. Without discipline, you won't complete the race. Without discipline, we won't win the ultimate prize that is ours. As I think I might have said one or two times before, I'm a, a particularly lover of sport. And if you read through the biographies and the lives of any of the great sportsmen in the world, but you could apply the same to musicians and to artists, their life is one of constant practice, constant attention to their skills and to the gifts they've been given, a honing of what they've been given to enable them to grow and their skills to develop and to enable them to come to be the best that they were created to be. If you read through some, I don't know, I was reading through something recently about some of the Olympic swimmers, the extraordinary lengths they go to train for what they were called to. And if we want to do anything for God, if we want to do anything great for God, discipline is a part of that. The Christian life calls us to that. And actually in bringing our best, it enables us to grow and to mature and to develop the way God wants us to. So what does it say in verses 5 to 8? Let me just reread what's in front of you. If you've got your Bible open, read this in verse 5 to 8. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children, for what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. So what's the motivation for God's discipline? Let's start with that. The writer of Hebrews encourages us that when we're disciplined by God, God isn't com communicating to us that God hates us or that God has rejected us, or that God doesn't want us. He's actually demonstrating to us that he loves us, that we're his children, 
And he's simply underlining what every parent experiences with their own children in child raising. We deeply care for our children. We deeply care for our children. And out of that care and that love for for our children, we want them to grow into the best version of themselves that God created us to be. Now you may think when we've looked at some of the studies on love, some of you who've been Christians a number number of years may think, you know, we talk about the unconditional love of God. And isn't there a temptation that when we talk about the unconditional love of God, it means that actually, do you know what? We can talk about that. God loves me, so I can just go and live the life however I want to. It doesn't really matter at all. But the writer of Hebrews says something very, very different. He says, in fact, the opposite. Because if you choose to put your faith in Jesus Christ as your personal saviour and your personal Lord, if you put him in trust that he saved you from your sins to become a child and heir of God, co-heir with Christ, you're signing up that God's love for you will involve discipline. As God loves his children, he cares for his children by showing that love for us. And what does that discipline look like? Well, what it looks like is this. God discipline said, because I really love you, I'm actually going to be honest with you. I'm not going to paint a dishonest picture of the way things are. I'm going to actually speak lovingly but honestly into your life. What does God's loving discipline look like? And because I love my children, I care enough to offer clear direction for your life. Even if it's difficult or unpopular, it's not what you would choose. Because I love you so much, I want you to go the right way and do the right things. And because I love you, I want you to see the long-term effects of the choices and the decisions you're making. The ripple of the decisions we make in life. And I want you, as my children, to realize that as I discipline you, I'm longing for you to grow in self-discipline so that you will understand how to live your own life well. So that's the motivation. What's the method of discipline in verses 5 and 6? And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as father addresses his son? It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. When we read scripture, um, we need to understand that according to the Bible, discipline has a lot of edges to it. It involves correcting, instructing, rebuking, training, and warning. In the, in the broadest sense of the word, discipline is for training for persons so they can learn to self-discipline. They can learn the fruit of self-control in their life, in some area of our life that all of us may struggle with, with self-control. God wants to enable us to grow healthy, godly habits in our life that require discipline and order so that we will become the disciplined people he's called us to be. And one of the words used in the Bible for discipline is the word nurture. In other words, God's longing to see us grow, to see us mature, and to see us grow up. God's love, God's discipline isn't promoted, isn't motivated by control, or be by vindictive, or by being angry, 
or by being punitive. He wants his children to grow up well, to fulfill the way he created us always to be and to do. At the end, you'll see in verse 11a in the passage in 12a, it says the reason we resist discipling our children and the reason we resist being disciplined is that discipline involves pain. Discipline involves some level of discomfort, some level of deprivation, some level of sacrifice, some shot across the bows that gets our attention. How does God do that in our lives? Sometimes God does that directly. Sometimes he does it through other people. Sometimes he does it through being part of his community. Sometimes he does it by allowing us to be caught or found out for the bad habits and the bad things we do. And it takes someone else to bring that to light in our lives. Most often it is through other people that God uses other people to grow us, to mature us, and to discipline us to be the people God's called us to be. It's why small groups, why being in a relationship or praying with people are so important. We're allowing other people to help us grow and to mature and to find out who we're made to be. A few years ago, um, it's about five, six years ago, I, was, I went away to a Christian conference, and I think at the time I was studying at Theology College, and there was a conference where um, there were some people who were, you prayed to the people who were quite prophetic, they had prophetic gifts, and at the end of the kind of seminars uh, or the service, they asked, don't be like, you to pray for you, come to the forward to be prayed for. I'm always up for a bit of prayer, always up for the kind of people praying for me to enable me to be. So I went forward, and uh, the person came to pray for me. And I've been prayed for many, many, many times in my life and will continue to be prayed for many, many times in my life. And the person put a hand on me and started to pray. And they, actually, this is a person who had, a, had a very significant prophetic gifts. And they started to pray all sorts of things over my life that were amazing. And I was sat there thinking, sorry, but I wasn't feeling anything. She was saying all sorts of things that the Lord was saying, some of which chimed as right, but wasn't really moving anything within me. And then she stopped. And she said, the Lord says, do not despise my revelation. Do not despise my revelation. And at that point, that point of rebuke in my life, God did something extraordinary to my heart and to my life. None of us like rebuke. None of us like to be told we've got it wrong. But sometimes what God was saying is that in this context of going to theology college, I was more interested in getting lots of information, of learning lots of things about God, learning lots about the church, working out where I was going to go, than actually caring what God wanted to say to me today. Do you care what God wants to say to you today? Sometimes God needs to speak into our lives in a way that enables us to hear his voice more than the clamor of all the other things. You see, many of us don't like that. I don't like being told I've got it wrong. Of course I don't. I'm proud of saying to someone earlier today, I'm a proud Yorkshireman. I think I've got it right, but clearly in many things I've got it very wrong. But sometimes the Lord needs to do that. He 
needs to show us, he needs to prick things in our conscience. Allow others to enable us to see things more clearly. We need to do it graciously, we need to do it truthfully. But we need not to pretend that we don't need that word of correction or word of, of rebuke. Many of us can go through our relationships thinking, you know, I can ignore being what I say and the consequence of it, but ultimately those things will catch up with us. We want to avoid pain, but the reality is with the consequences of things we do wrong means that we will at some point experience that. And when we go through pain, and when we go through difficulty, we need to be able to discern whether is God saying something to me in this? Is God speaking to me in this? Or actually, is it just the fact that I'm part of a fallen world? If we're going through hardship, it's not necessarily because you've done something wrong or anything, but we actually do need each other to enable us to discern what it is God is saying to us. When I... um, came first time to, to go, go to see the person in the Church of England about becoming a vicar. Um, I was sat in front of what is called in the Church of England the DDO, who sort of organizes people who want to be ordained. And she, they asked you just to tell your story, sat, tell my story, and she got to the end of it, and she said, do you know what, Tim, it seems, it seems like the times of great growth in your life have been the times when things have gone wrong. And that has generally been a case where even when the things of difficulty and hardship, God has used to bring great transformation to my own life. It doesn't always happen like that. It's not the same for everybody. Sometimes God quietly moves us along and enables us to grow through it. But God can use those things to enable us to grow, to enable us to flourish in the way that he calls us to do. And last thing, in verses 9 and 10, the purpose of discipline in verse 9 and 10. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. The writer here is contrasting the discipline that we receive from our earthly father or our earthly mother and the discipline that we receive from God, our Heavenly Father. You know, and I understand. All of us have had different parenting experiences ourselves. Forget how you've parented for a second. Just think about how you've parented maybe others if you have been a parent. And one of the reasons it's difficult to find that right balance of loving discipline is because we may not have been disciplined very well by our own parents. We may have had a terrible experience through our own parents. We may have experienced the fact that the only discipline we received is actually when our parents were really angry with or cross with us the whole time. That they annoyed us, that that they got annoyed by us, that that we seemed to be an inconvenience to them. And they just wanted to use their power to somebody who's weaker and smaller and to use that power to try and bring discipline to their life. Maybe you experienced parenting that was harsh or inconsistent. Sometimes we get punished for saying something or doing something we didn't do or we never did, but actually we still receive it. But our Heavenly Father, our good Father, our godly Father doesn't discipline us like that. That's not the way he disciplines us. He doesn't blow hot and blow cold. He doesn't say something is wrong today, then it's not wrong tomorrow. 
God is consistent, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't discipline out of annoyance. He doesn't discipline us because he, he's had a bad day. He doesn't discipline us because we're weaker or smaller. He doesn't discipline us because we've embarrassed him somehow, and he's just trying to save face. And there's one reason that the Father disciplines us. Look at verse 10. They discipline us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good. He's a good father in order that we may share in his holiness. God brings tough love into our lives for our good, for our own good, and for those around us good. And like earthly parents, we sometimes, I know as a parent, have very limited vision and can't see everything in its head. It's only God who can see ahead of our days today. And God isn't just concerned with how we feel today or what we think today, in this moment, this hour, this day, or even this week or this month or this year. God sees us as we are this morning in all your frailty, all your strength, all your whatever it is you are this morning. God loves you this morning as you are, unconditionally. God accepts you unconditionally as you are this morning. But by his grace, by his holiness, and by his goodness, he doesn't want to leave you the way you are this morning. God, our Father's tough love, transform us so that we, his children, are ready to share eternity in fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, now and forever. Amen.